Well, for my son's last birthday, uh, certain family members got him a little gift. And the gift was lottery tickets. I thought, oh, great. Well, he can, he can understand how the real world works, and we can curb any kind of uh, gambling habit ahead of time. Except uh, one of the tickets won. And so uh, I, would, I would definitely say that everyone who gambles uh, thinks that they could be the exception, right? Because it happened. Not necessarily for you, but it has happened before. People have won. And that's... That's why people do it. Um, but statistically, it's not likely to happen to you. Right? That's why casinos look nice. That's why states have lotteries for fundraisers, because more money comes in than goes out. Now, we had a pretty good laugh at the situation. And uh, as John was writing his thank you, he wrote something like, Thank you for the lottery tickets. I don't think I learned the lesson that I was supposed to. I'm not too worried about John developing a gambling habit. He's, uh, he's too practical for that. But many of us make the mistake of taking an experience, one that we have or one that somebody else has, and using it as proof that an action is right. Taking the result and saying whatever means to that was appropriate and God-honoring. In reality, I think we can use experience as evidence, but we need more than just what seems to work from our perspective to guide us. Now, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel and are nearing the end of this book in the Bible. The story that that we are covering today comes on the heels of yet another time when the unbalanced king of Israel, Saul, has tried to kill David. Right? David, the shepherd, turned hero, turned man on the run for a long time. And I want to read through the passage we're studying today. It's kind of a short chapter. Uh, so I want to read that all the way through and see if you have any questions. Um, and we'll get to some of those questions later. So here we go. Uh, Chapter 27 in 1 Samuel, starting with verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eye, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. 
And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asks, where have you made a raid today? David would say against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. All right, relatively short chapter. And I'm wondering if you have some questions. Because when I was reading this passage, I had lots of questions. So here's what we're going to do. We'll try this as a little experiment. I'd like you to turn to a few people around you and take turns sharing the biggest question that you have from this passage. When everybody shared... And yeah, you can opt out or like make yourself incredibly thirsty right now and go get a drink to avoid this. It's fine. Um, We'll all know what you're doing, but it's fine. And uh, then I'd like you to go to this website, slido.com, and you can can text in uh, the questions that your group came up with from this. We'll see if we can can cover them. Fair enough? Makes sense. Oh, it didn't do that, did it? Just kidding. All right, hold on. See, something's bound to go wrong every once in a while. Exit show. Is that it? There it is. All right, there we go. All right, slido.com. Enter in that code, then you can text right in. All right, well, thanks, thanks for that foray into uh, an experiment with me. Um, I'm glad to see that there were some questions, because like I said, I definitely had some when I was looking through. And actually, one of the first questions that we're going to cover is one that I didn't even catch until Pastor Kevin brought it up to me when we were going through uh, the notes. So let's take a look at that first verse. When David says, in his heart, right? He's fearing that he's going to die at the hand of Saul, um, which, is, which is a fair fear because Saul had been after him, tried to kill him a number of times, pursued him for a long time. And this is more of an internal conversation that we're privy to. What's interesting about this is that whereas David had been really good, at least in recorded scripture, he'd been really good about inquiring of the Lord about his decisions We don't see that here. It is conspicuously absent. Now, I don't want to make a huge argument out of of silence, but we don't see him seeking the Lord in this decision. And when we hear things today that sound a lot like this, there's lots of aphorisms like believe in yourself and trust yourself and follow your heart and listen to your heart, that's garbage. Right? It, is, it is foolishness at its core. And here's why. 
Because in Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay, so if you're looking to your own heart, that's probably the worst place that you can look for advice and guidance. It just is. We lie to ourselves all the time. Our heart is deceitful. And it's hard uh, to, to distinguish your motives um, from what is really right. So if this is where David is getting his wisdom, he's maybe in some serious trouble. Right? Should he have even made that decision to leave Israel, to go live with the enemy, the Philistines, those who had been attacking Israel uh, for a long time? Because after all, God had communicated to him that he was going to become king. So what was the faithful action? One can certainly understand David's weariness of running away from Saul. Right? Hiding in caves with all of his men and, and their families. Right? He's traveling around with hundreds of men and their families and they're living in caves and they're, they're seeing Saul come after them and, and they're leaving. It would get tiring after a week, right? after a day. And this was years, decades that he's been hiding. So the thought of escaping that would be enticing, for sure. And it worked. Right? We read later that Saul stopped pursuing him when he went into the land of the Philistines. So, case closed, right? That was God's will. Or was it? Right? Just because something worked doesn't necessarily mean it was the right thing. Right? We might be tempted to say, well, that was God's will. But that's the warning of this sermon, in fact. To not use experience as the proof. It's evidence. One of many pieces. But it's possible that the only thing that it proves is that God is gracious. Despite David's actions. So this first question, was it the right thing to do? I honestly can't answer that question 100%. I'm not 100% sure. I think David's David's motives were probably all right, but again, was he seeking the Lord or was he just doing what seemed best at the time? It's interesting, when he goes to the Philistines, um, and this uh, the, the king of the Philistines ends up being kind of a comedic character. The first time David went to this king, he pretended to be a madman. Right? He was drooling, scratching on things, like pretending to be completely insane. And so I'm curious to how this interaction went. <laughs> I got better. He made a miraculous recovery, apparently. Good news for David. Um, here's one of the other questions. I didn't see that come up, but um, he and his two wives go. Is that a question for anyone? I think maybe we've covered it before in First Samuel. Um, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. I think Pastor Mark has been able to address this um, at times. Technically, these were wives two and three. Right? His first wife was given to him by Saul, one of Saul's daughters, the king. And then she was given to somebody else. Again, I don't know exactly how that worked. Um, awkward. 
But, um, but maybe that was in, out of punishment for David. Maybe that was punishment for Michael for helping David escape from Saul. Don't know. Um, but I think, I think there are some reasons for uh, multiple wives in, in, um, with some reasons that are more noble than where our minds might immediately go. But here's, here's the truth that God sets forward at the very beginning. Right? He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, not wives, and they shall become one flesh. Okay? One flesh relationships do not work well with more than two people. Case in point, like every time it's ever mentioned in the Bible, and the show Sister Wives. Okay? So despite the fact that it's illegal, I think we can cover that. It's not the best decision, right? Not the wisest decision, even though it may not have been immoral, right? Um, as, as we move on, though, in verse 4, we mentioned this before, David's plan seemed to work, right? Pragmatically, it seemed to work. Saul stopped pursuing him when he went to the land of the Philistines, right? Saul wanted to get rid of David, but he didn't want to do that at the expense of losing his army in a battle with the Philistines. But pragmatism, in and of itself, is not a great test of morality. Because our perspective and our timeline and our rubric for success is not necessarily the same as God's. That's why experience can be evidence, but not necessarily proof. Right? Some people are rich because they steal. It works for them if they don't get caught. But at some point, they will have to account for their actions. I'm probably not the only one who's had moments where I've thought, well, I've used that language or I've watched that video and nothing, nothing dramatic. I didn't get struck by lightning and nothing dramatic and horrible happened to me. So... Maybe not a big deal, right? Anybody else, or really am I the only one? I hope I'm not the only one. Not that I hope that for you, I just hope that for me. I don't want to be alone in that. But point being, this working for David may only prove that God is gracious. While some people differ and commentators differ on whether his actions of going into um, the land of the Philistines was right or wrong... Everyone certainly agrees that he is a shrewd individual, right? He is, he is kind of genius in his political dealings and his interactions with some people, okay? Again, right or wrong. And so he, he goes in, into the land of the Philistines with this king, lives in the royal city for a little while, and is like, hey, we don't want to be a burden to you. Why don't we move out into the country, in other words, I really would rather have you not watching me or watching over my shoulder at everything that I'm doing. How about we move to the, to the sticks and uh, we'll be out of your hair, right? It's a win-win situation. And it seems to work out well for David's purposes. Again, maybe for Achish's too. I mean, he's got 600 men with him with their household. So he's got, what, 1,000, 2,000 people with him. Um, they all need food, place to be, etc. So 
Um, so this seems maybe like a win-win for everybody. But really what David was, was planning, and what he was trying to do, was to continue this, this war. Israel and the Philistines were at war, and he was trying to continue this, um, not fighting against Israel, but fighting against Israel's enemies. Right? He was a Hebrew. Um, they were his people. He wasn't going to attack them. I saw some of the questions that came up on the screen before. He didn't actually attack Israel. He said, or made it, made it seem like he was attacking Israel and becoming a stench uh, to his own people. But in reality, he was furthering the cause of Israel by attacking some of these other uh, people groups who had been attacking Israel. And he killed everybody. Now for me, this is one of the big questions in this passage. One of the hardest things to wrestle with, honestly, in, in reading the Old Testament. It's one of the hardest things to wrestle with. Um, so I'm going to skip that. And come back to it. Don't worry. We'll come back to it. Okay? Um, it, it, does, it does create a great deal of tension. So I'm going to finish the, the passage and then come back to that specific uh, point of, of why and what it meant for David to to destroy the entire village, like men, women. We'll talk about that. When he's, when he's going and making these raids, he'll come back to Achish, give him some spoils, right? So Achish is getting a good deal, right? He's getting some spoils. He's happy. And ask the casual question, where have you made a raid today? And what David says is, it, he tells these different places, like these kind of general areas, uh, one of the questions was, what does Negev mean? Uh, Negev basically just means arid. It's kind of like desert. Right? So, oh, kind of in the desert of, of Judah or in the desert of this other area. Kind of general, general, right? But making Achish think that he is he's attacking his own people. Right? In the desert of Judah. That was part of Israel. And the Kenites were... Um, we're not Israelites per se, but, um, but connected uh, through some different relationships. And so one of the other questions that comes up and that we've seen before in 1 Samuel is this idea of deceit and lying. Because again, it seemed to work for David to be deceitful. And to be fair, they're essentially at war. And many of you have more war experience than I do, since I have zero. Um, so, so I don't consider myself an expert on some of the situations that people find themselves in. I do know that they can be incredibly difficult. Because of sin, we put ourselves in situations that are really, really difficult. And I say because of sin, that's sin in general, right? <laughs> the world. But I don't want to. I don't want to take this particular experience in this particular situation um, and make a rule about truth. Right? Was that the right thing for David to do? <laughs> I know from the rest of Scripture, even though there are some passages like this, 
or uh, places like uh, Rahab hiding Israelite spies. Right? She was she was deceitful, lying to those who were against Israel, and it worked. And she was honored for that to some degree, or at least for her faith in seeing what God was doing with the Israelites and wanting to be a part of that, at least that part. But what I know about the nature of God from the rest of Scripture that's really clear and not just a specific situation and a specific time in history is that God is truth. I know that God is truth. I know that he doesn't lie. So, if our role is to become more like God in character, then I know that truth is something that I should pursue. And I shouldn't use something like this and see, say, well, David was deceitful, so it works for our marriage. <laughs> we don't want to do that. We don't want to take a specific situation and justify lying or deceit elsewhere. Our example is clear in God's character and Jesus living that out as a man. That's what we want to pursue. And as we continue on in this weird relationship with David and the king of of Gath... Achish's trust in David becomes even more comedic. Right? He's this is this is an example in this passage of David probably telling the truth, but definitely allowing someone else to get a different message uh, than he is intending. So David or Achish has assumed that David has been fighting against Israel. He's been fighting for the Philistines. He's bringing him spoils. He, he is a big David fan, right? Multiple likes. He's kind of in love with David, right? And so he says, hey, look, when we go to battle against Israel, I want you to come with us because you are the man. And David's response is, like, pretty amazing. He's like, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. What does that mean exactly? (laughs) Right? Um, So ambiguous. And what it probably means is, well, I'll go out to battle and I'll I'll flank you, right? And, And we'll join forces with Israel. It could be an epic battle and we're going to destroy you all. Like, that's probably what he means. And Achish is like, awesome, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Again, another true statement probably, but if David is going to be his bodyguard for life, that life might be shorter. Just saying. Now, let's get back to that big issue of David's raids. Because I think this is really I think this is really important. I think this is one of the things that that people read in the Old Testament and have a really hard time with. And I think that's fair. I do as well. Um, but I don't want that to be a barrier for someone um, putting their faith in Christ because of something that they read in the Old Testament that seems difficult and wrong without 
a little bit more understanding. So I'll attempt that. Okay? There are, there are a lot of places in Scripture that reveal God's character. Right? God is love. He's merciful. He's gracious. There are verses that tell us that God is patient. There are verses that tell us that God is just. And there's one passage in particular that has helped me understand passages like this one that we read about David raiding and and killing men and women. And it comes from Genesis chapter 15. The context is God speaking to a man named Abram, Abram, who would become Abraham. And I want you to pay special attention to verse 16. Here's what God says. He says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's not complete when God is speaking to Abraham. And it wasn't going to be complete for how many years? 400 years. Here's God's heart. We see that in 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is God's heart. And he gave the Amorites and other uh, people in this promised land that he was promising to Abram long before, giving them 400 years to respond to him. And they didn't. And I think there's, there's several other factors that apply to difficult passages like this. One is that more information can sometimes change our mind on things. So let's do a test. If I told you that a 24-year-old man, man was recently killed, uh, leaving behind... Uh, a wife and three children. What would your initial reaction be? Tragic. Right? What if I said I wasn't done? With a sentence. What if I said leaving behind his wife and three children in his freezer? Does that change things? Knowing a little bit more information, all of a sudden we're like, I know it's tragic. It didn't happen earlier. For him, right? And here's my point. My point is that knowing a little bit more information, just a little bit more information, totally changed our mind on something. What if you knew all the information about people? Now we can't, but God does. I'm glad we can't. If you knew everything that I'd done, said, thought, and why, you'd probably walk up and leave. 
Right? We don't, we don't have that ability to know everything about people. And so we need, when we encounter difficult passages, we need to understand that our, our knowledge is this. Right? Would it, would it help to know that some of these groups in this promised land were known for, like, deviant sexual worship and child sacrifice? Like, this was the stuff that was going on in this land. It's what God wanted to protect the Israelites from. What he wanted, I think when we see in 2 Peter, what he wanted is for people to respond to him in the right way. But after 400 years, they didn't. The point is that God was incredibly patient, but at some point it was time for an end. Like God is being patient with us, but at some point, this world is going to wrap up. A do-over, new heaven, new earth. So while it sounds awful, it also seems that David was doing some things that Saul failed to under God's direction. Again, as hard as that is to, to comprehend and, and grasp, right? Saul was supposed to go against the Amalekites and he was supposed to wipe them out. Because that was the end. And David was accomplishing what Saul failed to do. Again, in some ways, it doesn't seem like it makes it better. But hopefully it's just a little bit more complete understanding. I think the other, the other thing that we have to grapple with with texts like this is that all of us deserve death. And all of us will die. Right? So while we may, and sometimes rightly so, get very upset about the, the timing or the method or the reason for death, we, we have to grapple with the fact that none of us actually deserve life. We have it because God is gracious. And I, I think sometimes without, without intending to uh, diminish the pain and, and difficulty of death, I think sometimes we have it backwards, or at least I do, that sometimes maybe instead of being as upset with an untimely death, we might consider, again, I want to say this carefully, but we might consider marveling at how gracious God is to allow so much life. That is the fate of all of us. And it's why the the only way to escape that is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why that's such an incredible and gracious gift that God has given to us. That Jesus died for us. That Jesus took the penalty of our sin in our place so that we could have life. The most abundant life now and eternal life with God. That's what he wants for us. That's why he made a way. 
for us to have that. So again, I don't know if that helped you at all or not. I'm happy to have further conversations with this, but I I wanted to share or end with a couple of examples. Um, One is a of this point, dealing with experiences as evidence, not proof. And one was a, a conversation I had with a young woman um, years ago. Uh, she was a Christian. She was going to marry someone who was not. Now, I don't want to harp on this issue so much, but I, I want to talk about her response. Now, this isn't God's ideal, because two people who don't have the most important thing in common um, are going to have a hard road. And who's, who do you think is going to be more influential? Right? The Christian has already demonstrated a willingness to compromise biblical principles? Probably not. Sometimes, but probably not. And as I was expressing this concern to her, her response was literally, well, it worked for my parents. So yes, <laughs> Both of her parents ended up putting their faith in Jesus Christ, and they will spend eternity in heaven. And that is, to God be the glory, that is awesome, that is wonderful, and cause for joy. But, what did it prove? Did it prove that it was the right action for them? Or did it prove that God was gracious despite their actions. I think the latter. Another last example in kind of this gray area that sometimes we find ourselves in. Or maybe it's not gray and you can tell me after the service. Um, I recently interviewed for some different teaching jobs. I was offered one in... uh, in Spanaway, and I accepted that. I began the onboarding process, uh, met with the team, had gone and observed at the school, uh, was, was fully in. Now, this was, a, this was a dream job except for a couple things. One, it was in Spanaway. So I'd spend you know, almost a couple hours each day commuting. And I'd spent the last year and a half investing in relationships at a, at a school where my wife teaches. Now, there was supposed to be a position open at that school in the grade that a student taught in and and, uh, for the teacher that I long-term subbed for at the end of this year. That was my dream job. It was just a one-year position, but that was my dream job because all the relationships were there. I was invested. But at the time that I said yes to this other job, it was a closed door. And then it opened. And I applied, because why not? And I interviewed, because why not? Might be a moot point anyway. And then I was offered the job. Oh. So on the one hand, this is my dream job, right? Saving thousands of dollars in commuting fees, or commuting costs. Uh, continuing, you know, most importantly, continuing relationships with students and staff and people that I knew, or working with a team that I love. On the other hand... I would have to go back on my word. No, I hadn't signed a contract, but I'd said yes. 
to hurry on with the decision. I got to make it in like a few hours. So I ended up with my dream job. It worked. Right? I got what I wanted. Was it the right thing to do? Because I'd said yes to another job. Was it the right thing to do? Honestly, to this day? I don't know. I don't want to use that experience and the, and the fact that it worked out the way that we really wanted and had prayed for it to happen. I don't want to use that to justify having my word not mean something. Right? Maybe the only thing that it proved is that God is gracious despite my decisions and my efforts. So I think when we come to passages, especially like this, where there, there seems to be some genuine question about what's right, what's wrong in this, and maybe some real disagreement, I don't think we need to go to the exceptions to prove the rule. We have a rule. right? We have the whole counsel of Scripture. And there are some things that are a little less clear. There are a lot of things that are super clear. And I just want us to avoid the mistake of looking at something that seems to work in one particular situation as the rule to guide our actions. Let's look at what God has laid out in all of Scripture. Let's follow His clear commands. Let's model our lives after Jesus. And... And let's relish the fact that despite our failures, despite our disobedience sometimes, that God is still a gracious God.